when have countries really undergone systemic major overhauls? It's usually after a war, after a revolution, after a really major economic crisis when everybody is so impressed with the failure of the old system that they're willing to try something very different. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I want to revisit a debate we had a couple of weeks ago when Donald Trump decided to bomb an airfield in Syria. You know, there's something about the news biz, there's something about the op-ed biz that makes for strong opinions. You want to go to your readers with a clear point of view. I myself find that when I write my column, I sometimes come off, you know, more clear-headed or at least less honestly confused about the world as I perhaps am in the real world. But on a topic like what to do about Syria, I just don't understand how stark the opinions are on either side of the divide. On the one side, you have people saying anything other than bombing Syria, trying to intervene that civil war, when there's no clear path out of it, when it's not obvious who on the ground is a great liberal democratic force, is an evil person. And I just don't understand that certainty. And on the other side of the divide, you have people saying, you know, we obviously shouldn't intervene. Anybody who wants to intervene is a warmonger, a terrible imperialist. And so we should just let people die, not enforce a key international norm on ensuring that children aren't gassed as a result of war. And I just don't understand that either. It seems to me that it's incredibly complicated to know what to do. Any course of action is likely to have many victims. And so my main impression of a conflict is that we should pay more heed to the moral ambivalence, to the gray on gray, than people on either side of the debate have been doing. On the next episode of A Good Fight in two weeks, I'm really excited to have Catherine Rampell join us. But today I'm delighted to have Francis Fukuyama on the podcast. Fukuyama has achieved something only very few intellectuals ever do. He coined a phrase that seemed to sum up a whole epoch of history. But his work is so much more than that. For many decades, he has been one of the most perceptive analysts of world politics. In his magisterial two-volume Origins of Political Order, he analyzes how states get to Denmark, which is to say, how they become stable, peaceful, prosperous, and inclusive. Welcome to The Good Fight, Frank. A few days after Donald Trump's inauguration, you wrote that As a political scientist, I'm looking forward to his presidency with great interest since it will be a fascinating test of how strong American institutions are. Americans believe deeply in the legitimacy of their constitutional system in large measure because its checks and balances were designed to provide safeguards against tyranny and the excessive concentration of executive power. But that system in many ways has never been challenged by a leader who sets out to undermine its existing norms and rules. So we embarked on a great natural experiment that will show whether the United States is a nation of laws or a nation of men. In the piece, Frank, you, you ultimately argue that many institutional checks on power will to continue to operate in a Trump presidency. So do you think that the last months, uh, the first sort of hundred or so days of Trump's presidency have borne out this cautious optimism? Yeah, I think uh, they absolutely have. I think, in fact, at the 100-day mark, we're much more likely to regard Trump as a weak and ineffective president rather than as some kind of a tyrant. I think probably the most telling event was the failure of the Republican effort to repeal Obamacare. If you remember, Trump said that he would do this on day one of his administration. It would mm. be easy. They would replace Obamacare with something that was cheaper, that uh, no one would lose coverage, insurance would be much more effective, so on and so forth. And here we are with no prospect of anything remotely close to that happening. And so I think it indicates, you know, the ways in which somebody with that little experience and, you know, frankly, contempt for government 
you know, how ineffective someone like that really ends up being. So I have a question about that, which is I share some of that cautious optimism, more so than I did 100 days ago. When, when, when I read your piece at the time, I thought it was overly optimistic. And now I think that you really did seem to predict a bunch of things that have happened since then. Now, there's two ways of interpreting that, one which is really optimistic and one which is sort of semi-optimistic, right? The, the really optimistic version is there's just no way for somebody who's that disdainful of democratic norms and really effective to become elected president, or there would then be other roadblocks. The less optimistic reading is to say that, well, look, you know, we're sort of lucky that Donald Trump is the particular kind of would-be authoritarian that we got, because he doesn't have a deep ideological commitment to destroying liberal democracy in the way that perhaps Recep Erdogan or Viktor Orban in, in Turkey and Hungary might arguably have. He's not that effective at what he does. And so we sort of got lucky. Which of those two do you think is closer to the truth? Yeah, or else we got unlucky because uh, he did actually lose the popular vote uh, by a considerable margin. And you know, in a way, he squeaked by. In fact, if Jill Stein hadn't been running, Hillary Clinton would be president today. I grew up in Germany and not patriotic, uh, especially about the country or the language, but there is one lovely phrase, Glück im Unglück, which is good <laughs> luck as you're having bad luck. So so perhaps yeah, this is yeah. what I'm uh, asking about. Yeah. Well, so that's certainly a, a concern that you would have a more effective demagogue the next time. Although, if you just look at the way the Russia story has played out, you know, Trump was single-handedly trying to change the country's position on a really major foreign policy issue. And I think, you know, as it's turned out, that's pretty hard to do because power is really distributed quite widely in the American system. And what people think in Congress, including, you know, what they think in his own party, uh, still continues to matter quite a bit. But it's certainly the case that he's made some big strategic mistakes that smarter, you know, future demagogue may not. I think the most important one is that the way that he could have become an Erdogan or a Putin is if he had really tried to reach out uh, to other people other than the narrow base of his kind of fanatical supporters uh, after the election. In a certain way, that's what happened with Ronald Reagan, that uh, people had low expectations for him, but he actually got an awful lot of Democrats uh, to support his tax cuts and other you know, parts of his agenda. Trump has not remotely come close to doing that. He continues to hold campaign rallies, which is a little bit mm. crazy for somebody who's actually been elected president. But he only goes to the red states you know, where he's got these very passionate supporters. He's never tried to reach out to the Democrats. He's never tried to break with the kind of conservative Tea Party orthodoxy that's dominant, especially in the House of Representatives. And as long as he does that, he's really not going to create the steamroller effect. You know, so what really creates a tyrant is very, very strong popular support where your opponents are afraid to oppose you because right. they think that they're going to get on the wrong side of public opinion. And that you know, he's completely failed at that. I was struck by something you said, which is the way that a clever authoritarian may have been able to follow in the example of Orban and Erdogan in the United States. I mean, I'm hesitant to ask you this because I fear that your answer is going to be pretty effective and if the wrong people are listening, they may get ideas. But, but what, <laughs> you know, what, what would the smart dictator's playbook, the smart would-be dictator's playbook be in the United States? I mean, if a, a, a future populist is elected to the presidency, what would be the steps that he or she would have to take in order to actually put the system in mortal danger? Well, I think it's a fundamentally democratic system. And so what you need is democratic legitimacy. I, mean, I think this is what's going on across the world with these populist nationalists is that they are using the fact that they have public support to undermine the liberal rule of law parts of their democracy. So that's what Erdogan is doing, that's what Orban has been doing, that's what Putin's been doing. And I think that that would be the playbook for an American future uh, demagogue to use the popular mandate to basically, for example, ignore a court order that tells mm. uh, him not to do something. So that means that you have to pay attention to communications. So that's one of the things that these other dictators have done, that they've actually 
managed to seize control of the commanding heights of the media. So Putin was really, well, actually, Berlusconi was the first one that figured this out. And I think Putin actually just copied him, Hmm. uh, you know, to control all of the major uh, media channels. And Trump, facing the same situation, has done what he could, which is to try to delegitimate the existing media channels. But uh, he's not rich enough to buy, you know, all of the TV networks. Uh, He's been pretty, pretty effective on uh, social media. But in the end, I think he still is dependent on the mainstream media to get his message out. This is what was kind of crazy about his early attempt to attack everything that uh, mainstream media was saying as fake news. So that, I think, it would be part of the strategy that you would have to use. Now, again, that's pretty hard to do. In, in this country, uh, there aren't many people that are rich enough you know, to really control all of the the news outlets and to dominate it so that basically all you get is Fox News. But don't you think that sort of comes downstream in a way? It it is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. And I think that is one of the ways in which the system genuinely constraints would be authoritarians. That, you know, in order to really destroy the system, you have to be super popular. But in order to to have that kind of popularity, you have to control information, right? Right. but you certainly don't have to be that rich. I mean, that, that was true of Berlusconi, who already owned all the important private media channels in Italy before he was elected. And then once he was elected, he was able to take control of Rai and, and, and the other sort mm-hmm. of state media uh, outlets. But you see in Poland, you know, a, a party that is not made up of especially rich people taking control of state television very quickly and really having a purge there, and then using the levers of a state in order to force critical media companies to sell to their political allies, in order to force out foreign media and so on. So it seems to me that all you would need is for a president who comes in to be very popular and then very quickly undermine independent state institutions. And that may be obviously a very difficult thing to do, right? So, so the first thing you do is to pack the Supreme Court, right? And and you do it under the guise of an efficiency reform. You come in and you say, look, you know, nine Supreme Court justices, there's so many cases pending, how are they going to do that? I am going to, you know, appoint these 10 excellent, very fair judges, and they're all on your side. They're not Neil Gorsuch, they're people who are complete loyalists, right? Mm-hmm. And then you start with libel reform and all of those kinds of things, which would otherwise be immediately struck down by the Supreme Court, But once you've started to undermine those independent state institutions, you can sort of bend the media to your will. You are giving the uh, dictators a playbook there. So I think those are strategies that you would use. I think that, again, that's where the strength of institutions comes in, because it's not that easy to pack the Supreme Court in the United States. I do think this is the danger that we've seen, which is that under the radar, there are a lot of less prominent institutions that guarantee the neutrality of the public sector in the United States where, you know, Trump has been chipping away at it. So, you know, it's institutions like the Federal Reserve, the intelligence agencies, you know, even things like the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which during the campaign he claimed was a partisan institution because it was reporting that there was a low unemployment rate. And so still, again, it's a big task. And I think whoever does it really has to know a little bit more about the way that the government works. Now, if your premise is we've got a really smart dictator the next time who actually is more likely to succeed if he or she comes from within the system, then yeah, I think, you know, that would be a real danger. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to me that at the moment we're in a situation where we have and not so strategically clever, let's say, would be authoritarian in the White House. And we have a political system that has very strong partisanship and a whole bunch of problems, but where, you know, every president until the current one did pay heed to very basic democratic norms. And every one of them, perhaps in their own ways, you know, stepped over a few of them, but all of them kept paying allegiance to the most important ones. That's where I think, though, that the danger that he poses, I think, is not overtly to destroying existing institutions. I think it really is more this normative aspect where, you know, for the first time, you've got a president that pays no lip service whatsoever to human rights or to democracy. He doesn't even talk about democracy and freedom in the United States, but he certainly doesn't talk about that abroad. And then 
You know, he recently congratulated Erdogan on his great uh, constitutional reform. He's welcomed General Sisi from Egypt. And this sends a huge, you know, signal to people on the outside. So if you're struggling for democracy in places like Turkey and Egypt, and the most powerful country in the world is welcoming the person that's putting you in jail, you know, what do you think your model is? So that that's one thing that's very bad. The other thing I think really has to do with within the United States, you know, he's got so many conflicts of interest. He campaigned on this platform of draining the swamp, and he's created, you know, this massive, massive swamp with all of his children and his failure to, you know, open up his tax returns and his failure to divest himself from all these business interests. And it seems to me that that's going to set a whole lot of precedents for how future politicians feel entitled to behave in this country. So, you know, one of my big concerns over the past few years is I think you actually have to have a state. You have to have a impartial state that's trusted by citizens that can provide basic services and that many of the dysfunctions in modern democracies come from that kind of state failure rather than a failure of democracy per se. And I think there's just been a huge amount of damage done to them because anytime any institution, any impartial institution has gotten in his way, he attacks it as partisan. So it's basically the pot calling the tea kettle black. And so he's the one that is you know, now in the process of politicizing all of these institutions. And we'll have to see, like the Federal Reserve is a, you know, is a critical one. He's going to be able to shape that organization in very critical ways. And I think that's not going to be necessarily a front page story when it happens. But I think that will, in the long run, have huge institutional consequences. Interesting. There's a lot of projection going on, right? I mean, there's a nice line about conspiracy theorists that, you know, the kinds of people who continually engage in conspiracy theory are probably the people who are most prone to actually trying to carry out conspiracies themselves. And, and there's something uh-huh. similar there about corruption, right? I mean, the, the continual sort of like, well, this is a swamp, everybody's corrupt and so on. Well, perhaps if you have a certain way of doing business, you expect that everybody else must do as well. You know, I want to understand this sort of long-term corrosive effect on the democratic norms. I mean, there's been moments in American history where we've had a sitting president like Richard Nixon, who's obviously violated basic democratic norms in crazy ways, for he did it secretly, unlike Trump. You know, there's been things like the suspension of habeas corpus in in the Civil War, like Japanese internment during World War II, where there was really huge moves away from basic norms. And they were relatively brief. And afterwards, the system worked and sort of reestablished itself. So it might be that all of these corruption things that are going on, all of the rhetorical disdain for the democratic norms is going to be a phase and it's going to go away. There's another possibility, which is that we are seeing the beginning of a real erosion, that at the moment the system's defenses, you know, to say packing the Supreme Court are strong enough because we've had all of these presidents who've paid real allegiance to it, but that perhaps over the next 20 or 30 years, we'll see one president after another dismissing those kind of norms for partisan reasons, playing loose with them, and that 25, 30 years from now, we're no longer going to have the kind of democratic defenses we need in order to resist a similar kind of populist. Where do we think we stand on this? Is it too early to tell? Yeah, I just don't see how you could possibly make a prediction on that. You know, I think that one thing that will matter a great deal that people, that Trump's critics aren't paying enough attention to is basically the economy. Because if in two years when we have the midterm elections and then in four years when we have the election for the second term, if the economy is booming and you know there's over full employment, incomes are rising, which is possible, entirely possible, then I think a lot of these controversies over Russia and these little issues that don't even you know, hit the front pages that we've been talking about. None of that's going to matter. And it is the case that since November, the global economy has been doing really well. I mean, the Chinese mm-hmm. are clocking in at very surprising rates of growth. There's a pickup in, in most emerging markets. Even Japan is doing better. None of this is due to Trump, of course. But you know, this is one of the truths that I think a lot of political scientists have established that the way people vote, you know, depends heavily on the economy, but they mm. don't get cause and effect right. And 
basically whoever is in the White House when things are going well is uh, going to be rewarded for that. So that's entirely possible as an outcome. And I think, you know, that sort of thing will, will determine where voters are going to place him among American presidents much more than, you know, whether uh, Ivanka, you know, divested herself of her interest. The other thing is he campaigned as a populist. He promised coal miners and people in, you know, the Rust Belt that all their jobs were going to come back. It seems at this point extremely unlikely that any of that is going to happen. Right. And the question then is, perceptually, can he still hold on to that base despite the objective failure simply by doing enough symbolic stuff that he continues to make these people feel that he's on their side and understands them? Or at some point, do they get you know, disgusted and say, you know, this guy is just like every other politician. He's a complete fraud. Now, you know, the New York Times has been running all these stories looking for any tiny hint that there's this daylight between him. and <laughs> I, I actually don't believe that there really is any evidence for that yet. I think that they're still, you know, fully behind him. And the other thing is, even in the absence of a booming economy, it could be that he does just enough symbolic stuff and says the right stuff that he'll manage to keep these people on board. I think that dichotomy may be a little too stark, right? Like he promised them that all of them are going to have jobs and they're not going to all have jobs. So clearly they will hate him sort of line on the one side, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Which I agree is sort of silly. I mean, on the other side, I think sometimes there's a, well, but he can do symbolic things and so on. And we're not really going to turn against him. And I think that's sort of true. But I wonder where the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? That one of the things about an untested politician, which in some ways Barack Obama was in 2008, mm -hmm. um, is that everybody can project what they want onto him, right? If you are a white nationalist, you can see in Donald Trump your leading figure. If you are, you know, a traditional Republican, you can say, well, he talks all of these things, but, you know, in the end, he'll be constrained and he'll be a traditional Republican. Now, four years into governing, it's not that one of those groups is going to have completely turned against you, but one or the other group will be a little disillusioned. They'll say, well, you know, you didn't turn out to be quite the white nationalist. I hope you would. And, and that doesn't mean we're going to vote for the Democratic candidate, for sure. And it doesn't, you know, perhaps mean that they hate him even. But it does mean that there's less enthusiasm and that fewer of those voters come out to vote and perhaps with some on the margins flip their vote to some other candidate. And when you think about, you know, the kind of majority he had, I mean, as you said, he didn't have a majority in the popular vote and his, you know, reasonable majority in the Electoral College came about because of 80,000 distributed votes. My hope is just that it's going to be enough to overcome those, right? That enough of those votes in those states are going to just be people who stay home, a few people who switch their vote, not out of, he is a traitor, we hate him, but out of no longer being able to project all of your hopes onto him and, and some people stay home, some people switch their vote. Yeah, well, that's entirely possible. I mean, in fact, likely that there will be this erosion. Although, you know, what happened in the November election was that he actually was only at about 75% Republican support at the time that the Access Hollywood tape came out. If the election had been held then, he, I think, pretty clearly would have lost. And then in the remaining weeks of the election, that number went from 75 to 95. Basically, a lot of Republicans who were not enthusiastic decided they hated the alternative so much that they decided to you know, swallow their doubts and vote for him. That's the kind of calculation people are still going to be making. It is true that in terms of turnout, if he really is not delivering in a fundamental way, then that may have an important effect on the next election. Part of the reason, obviously, why it went back up to 95% is that, you know, Republicans really hated Hillary Clinton. And, you know, you can argue a lot about why that is. What kind of candidate do you think the Democrats should nominate in 2020? And, you know, more importantly, more broadly, what kind of policy should they run on? What is a set of ideas that can, you know, mobilize the Democratic base, but also appeal to some of those swing voters? So that's where I think the Democrats are really in big trouble, because I don't think there is such a candidate that can appeal to both groups. I mean, clearly, the activists in the party have all been, you know, hugely energized by the election, and they're out there, they're angry, they're protesting, and the like. And 
it's going to give big you know, momentum to whoever represents the left wing of the Democratic Party. So I don't know, Elizabeth Warren or whoever. It's a little bit like what's going on in Britain now with Jeremy Corbyn having taken over the Labour Party. It means that they're not going to be able to win a general election. You know, I think in democracies, a lot of times the adjustment to losing an election takes a couple of election cycles to mm. really kick in. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly what's going on with the Labour Party right now. I think, you know, Theresa May has just called it snap election. And I think that the Tories are going to come back with a huge majority because the Labour has really undermined itself. And there's a danger that that will happen in the Democratic Party. And so it may be that they'll actually have to lose a couple of elections before they really come up with, you know, the winning formula. I mean, my personal view is that they have to figure out a way to get back to economic issues and to get away from the identity politics that's characterized their approach to winning elections and their really their approach to governing over the last several cycles. The loss of that white working class bloc, which was a key constituent of democratic majorities ever since the New Deal, I think is really critical. And I think that's where the big argument within the party is taking place. You know, do we double down on professional women and African Americans and the LGBT community and, and that sort of thing? Or do we actually try to win back some of those working class voters? And in terms of both my substantive preferences and also as a strategy, I think that, you know, they really got to go for the latter. But we'll, whether that'll happen in the next election cycle, that's harder to say. I, I want to dig down into this because I think I tend to agree with you, but I don't know quite how to do that. So it's true that both times Obama got elected, over 50% of his electorate was white. But then there was this sort of narrative about how Obama won, which is what was a coalition of minorities. And I think it generally made some Democrats forget that, yes, it was based on having huge support and turnout among minorities, but also deep and real appeal to white Americans. And the reason for that is that Obama, again, was a new political candidate that people could sort of project things onto, but also made people an economic promise. You're going to have health insurance. Your life is going to get better, right? Mm -hmm. I have two interlocking questions about this. The first is, how do you defend ethnic and sexual and other minorities, religious minorities, that really are under attack in certain ways from the Trump administration without making it look like you are just the party of minorities and you have no appeal to make to, say, white working class people? And then the other is, you know, one of these answers is, well, you need a very strong economic agenda, right? The more you campaign on economic issues and the more radical your economic promises are, the less the salience is going to be on those identity issues. But of course, then you run the danger of going too far left from sort of the median vote on the economic issues. If the next Democratic candidate proposed what Jean-Luc Mélenchon is proposing in the French presidential elections, which is to have a 100% tax on people over $400,000 income, well, you assure that people are not going to talk about anything else, but you also ensure that you're going to lose the election, right? Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. how do Democrats defend minorities that are under attack while switching the conversation to economic issues without turning off people with moderate economic views? Well, I can't answer that question, and that's the reason I'm an academic and not a politician. <laughs> I'm actually in the process of writing a short book on identity, so I've been thinking about hmm. a lot of these issues. Uh, you cannot get away from the need for identity. Nobody is ever going to be loyal to this kind of global universalist, you know, sort of liberal non-identity where, you know, we're all citizens of the world. I mean, everybody needs a country. They need a set of norms and cultural rules that bind them together as a country. But the problem is that once you start fragmenting those identities into ever smaller minorities, you lose any sense of common purpose and common good. And so you have to be able to appeal to that sense of national community and using it to get to other parts of your agenda. So, for example, you could defend the environment not on the basis of a kind of global you know, we have to worry about the effects on Nauru and all these islands in the Pacific in a generation, which, you know, basically most Americans just don't give a damn about. But you could say, you know, we need to protect our 
you know, our land. This was our inheritance. Uh, uh, you know, this is a trust that was given to us that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're spoiling uh, and so forth. And so the language in which you couch these appeals, I think, matters a great deal. And I think a brilliant politician is the one that comes up with a formula that allows him or her to do all of those things, like protect minorities under a banner that also makes other people who are not minorities think that they, you know, they're being cared for as well. And what exactly that is, I'm not sure. The other really big problem I think that any future politician is going to have to face is, is this whole question of technology and automation and job loss as a result of technological change. And there, I think the problem is not a rhetorical one. It's a really deep, hard, substantive one, uh, which is that, you know, there is going to be this continuing loss of work in ever higher skill categories. It's now not just manual laborers doing repetitive tasks. It's middle managers sitting in offices processing data that are going to see their jobs uh, eroded. And, you know, this is an area where I don't think there I've seen any real ideas other than retraining, which is one of those things that, sure, you know, let's turn all these truck drivers into computer programmers at age 55. <laughs> uh, right. You know, I mean, I, I just think that, that there are limits to how much you can do in that area. In any event, America has shown that it's not really good at running these kinds of programs. And that's the challenge that I think somebody is going to need to take up seriously, actually, either on the right or the left. I agree with you about the sort of the absurdity of saying, you know, the truck drivers should just learn to to code and have a startup or, you know, uh, why don't all the three million truck drivers who might be out of a job start selling jewelry on Etsy? But I want to actually dig down, I want to get back to it, but I want to dig down a little bit on the identity thing. I'm fascinated to hear that you're writing a book about this. You know, I am really conflicted about this. I grew up in Germany, uh, Jewish and, you know, it's not a big part of my identity. I'm not religious or anything like that. And yet I felt that it really did set me apart from society in many ways. But because of Germany's history, when you mentioned you were Jewish, it was such a big thing in people's minds, even though it wasn't for me initially, at least, that they didn't think of me as a German anymore. They thought of me as this sort of very different kind of person. And one of the things that I've always loved about America is that it seemed to me a society where it doesn't matter as much, where you can be uh, Jewish or come from Sweden or Turkey or be Japanese-American, be, you know, even Latino and black, which obviously are more complicated categories because they're much more disadvantaged. Uh, but that doesn't stop you from being an American. And I have to say that I've become a lot more pessimistic over the last five or ten years about the prospect of multi-ethnic democracy in general, certainly in Europe. And I still think that it has a better chance of seeing in the United States, but even here I'm less confident than I was. And and so I'd love to hear, you know, A, something about your, sort of actually your own identity, if you don't mind my asking. I mean, I know that you, I think you're somebody who precisely encapsulates one of the liberal freedoms of a multi-ethnic society, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, which is to say that you know, you are obviously Japanese in heritage. I, I believe that, that that your grandfather was actually interned during World War II, and yet that doesn't seem to be something that is very important to you. You want to live in a society where that fact is sort of secondary to who you are in a way that's not invoked at the moment, in a way that actually among minorities in the United States, a lot of people now want to have that be a much bigger part of their identity and much more central even to a political identity. So how do we create a society in which, on the one hand, we fight against some of the real racial and other injustices that, that are ongoing in the United States, but we also preserve that space that I think you and I both want. I want to be able to be an American to whom it doesn't matter that I'm Jewish, to whom that's not the defining feature. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that you have a similar vision, but but perhaps I'm, I mean, I'm guessing here a little bit. Well, yeah, I grew up in New York City. You know, I was born in 1952, and I grew up in a period before ethnicity and ethnic identity was at all fashionable. And when I was young, you know, I, I never learned to speak Japanese. My father was also born in the United States, but both of my parents could speak it, but I never wanted them to speak it at home because I said I'm an American, and I resented the fact, you know, whenever 
somebody would ask me, where are you from? You know, I'd say I'm from Chicago, which is actually where I am from. But then, you know, I think ethnicity came into fashion in, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, thereafter, things changed. There wasn't the same desire to assimilate. People were increasingly proud of whatever heritage they had. And that, I think, has continued apace. I mean, I actually think that too much of that is, is a little bit dangerous because I, I really do think that the United States has worked not just because it's tolerant of people coming from other places, but also because it's been pretty good at integrating them and making them not just feel like Americans, but also live according to American norms, which have to do with respect for the Constitution, the rule of law, democracy, you know, all of these political ideals that I think hold the, the country together. And the country does not work if you get minority communities that actually feel an equal degree of loyalty to you know, the country to which they came. I've actually never quite understood. I mean, I see politically why it happens, but I've never really been comfortable with the idea of dual citizenship because it mm. seems to me, you know, the ultimate test of citizenship is whether you're going to fight for your country. And if you're a dual citizen, what if your two countries go to war with each other? Where's your ultimate loyalty going to fall? So I do think that this belief in, you know, a certain community that accepts you, but that you also accept is important. I think what's happened in terms of the rise of Trump is that because on the left, there's been such an emphasis on these separate identities, you know, ethnic and racial and gender and sexual orientation now, you know, that a lot of the less economically well-off whites have said, well, you know, everybody's getting special privileges. I mean, so this is a perception. This is right, not right. Uh, this is not the reality, but it's certainly the perception that everybody's getting, you know, this special treatment. And what about us? You know, other people are pushing in line in front of us. This is this metaphor, you know, this book on, on rural Louisiana that was just published. The researcher was talking to people, Tea Party voters, and, you know, why they thought the way they did. And I think it just sets off this very unhealthy dynamic where all of a sudden you've got this zero-sum scramble for resources among self-regarding identity groups. Hmm. And so I think you need to get back to a concept of identity that's much more inclusive than that, you know, that has to be built, I think, around democratic uh, ideals of some sort. Identity is important, you know, shared values are important, but they have to be ones that will accommodate the de facto diversity of people out there. What does that sort of mean concretely? Because I'm trying to formulate that for myself, and I'm trying to think through what is the American identity, and how do we get back to a conception of American identity that does precisely this, that overcomes this dangerous dynamic where, you know, more and more politics becomes around separateness rather than inclusion. I mean, one of the interesting things about Barack Obama as a political candidate was that in part because he is black, he didn't have to talk about identity in those kinds of ways, and he could make a big narrative about what unites Americans. That's what made him so appealing as a candidate, right? Mm -hmm. now, now, how do we preserve a language of unity that acknowledges, in a way that perhaps political discourse in the 60s and 70s didn't, some of the real injustices and some of the real challenges of racial equality in this country, which is yet to be achieved, but while actually building towards a society that allows for both equality and, and a sense that you're not defined by who you are unless you wanted to define you? Well, you know, this, I think, is mostly a rhetorical question because I think in principle the answer to that is pretty clear, that you want identity based on a certain kind of liberal nationalism, that, you know, we are a community that is defined by our liberal democratic values I mean, I guess the question is, historically, that identity has included other sorts of things that are not, strictly speaking, sanctioned in a truly liberal society. So this is this issue over saying Merry Christmas, right? Because clearly, a lot of historically American identity was built around, uh, you know, was built around a kind of shared uh, Christianity, which you could pretty much take for granted, you know, up through the big wave of immigration, you know, at, at the turn of the 20th century, but which, you know, increasingly became problematic. But, all right, so 
now people you know talk instead about their Christian heritage of the nation, they talk about the Judeo-Christian heritage. You know that aspect of it, you know, is evolving, but the core of it is basically a set of political values that you are dedicated to freedom and equality, to the Constitution, to equal rights, and internationally, you know, that's what we stand for. So, this is not a new idea. This was, you know, I think the consensus that emerged in the second half of the 20th century over what uh, American identity should properly be, and right now it's being threatened, you know, both on the left and on the right. So I, I think, you know, we, we kind of somehow need to return to that. I agree with that mostly. I would like to return to it. I think my, my hunch is that we'll have to change what that narrative is in order to return to it, <laughs> that, that we need a new version of it. And I really don't know what it is yet, but I really uh, look forward to thinking through these topics when your book comes out. I want to go for a moment to the arguments in Origins of Political Order, which, you know, is, is a magisterial book, which is motivated in many ways by the question of how do you get to Denmark? How do you become this sort of inclusive, prosperous, peaceful society? But I think in many ways, some of its most interesting themes, especially in volume two, are about how Denmark may be ceasing to be Denmark. But upholding this kind of society turns out to be pretty difficult. And I know that, you know, in the United States, you give examples like the National Park Service that used to be this sort of efficient and public-spirited organization and then becomes captured in many ways by, I suppose, low-level forms of corruption. I'm not sure that's quite the right term. Why is Denmark ceasing to be Denmark? Or why is the United States ceasing to be the United States? You know, forgetting about Trump sort of on, on a more long-term perspective. And what can we do about that? Denmark's problems and the United States' problems, I think, are quite different. Denmark, up until the last generation, was a remarkably homogeneous society. You know, virtually a whole society with blonde hair and blue eyes, and they can maintain a healthy welfare state because they really do think of themselves as family. And then you have this influx of immigrants, many of whom are culturally extremely different. And I think the society is working a lot less well because neither the indigenous population nor the newcomers can really figure out exactly where you know, the newcomers fit into that narrative. And in a country like Denmark, it's just not the United States. I mean, I was at a conference in Denmark a few years ago where you know, an American woman who was married to a Dane and had been living in Denmark for quite a while said she was still having trouble being accepted in many ways because, you know, what it means to be a Dane is, you know, what order you eat your fish and, you know, <laughs> ceremonies you go through, holidays and all of this stuff that required this very detailed cultural knowledge that outsiders have a hard time acquiring. So I think that's really their challenge is to figure out how to you know, maintain stability in the face of this real kind of outside cultural shock. And, and that's a challenge that hasn't really been historically answered yet, right? I mean, I'm always no, struck no, by the fact that all. there aren't any mono-ethnic, monocultural societies of a kind that Denmark used to be that have transitioned to being multi-ethnic societies uh, under democratic rules. So we really don't know exactly how that works. No, we don't. We don't. So that's an evolving story that uh, we're going to have to follow. The United States problem is a little bit different. I think, you know, this is the argument that Mansur Olson, the economist, made many years ago. If you have a long period of stability, peace, and, and, and stability, you just have this tendency for elites to capture the existing system simply because they're the ones with the money and the power. And over time, they begin to, you know, corrupt it to their own benefit. Now, in the United States, those elites are not simply rich oligarchs that vote Republican. I mean, sometimes, you know, they can be public sector unions, they can be environmentalists, they can be anyone that is really well organized to defend a particular political point of view. And you just get this accumulation of interest groups that succeed in entrenching themselves both in law and in policy to the point where it becomes difficult to do things that they you know, disapprove of. And so that's the story of the U.S. Forest Service, which had a very clear single mission when it got started, but that mission has gotten incredibly complicated by the fact that these interest groups now wanted to do all sorts of things that don't make sense, like protecting houses built in fire hazard woodland areas from burning down. 
which is something that the Forest Service now spends billions of dollars mm. every year seeking to do. So I think this is the larger problem of American government is the state capture on a whole variety of levels. And then because the state has been captured, it then becomes impossible to reform because all of these groups have a veto over large reforms that hurt their interests. And I think generally speaking, unfortunately, if you think about this historically, when have countries really undergone systemic you know, major overhauls. It's usually after a war, after a revolution, after a really major economic crisis when everybody is so impressed with the failure of the old system that they're willing to try something very different. You know, I actually think that that's probably the reason why a lot of intelligent people were willing to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump because they thought, well, maybe he is enough of a tsunami striking the system from the outside that he'll shake some stuff loose. Unfortunately, you know, in terms of special interests, uh, he seems <laughs> to be Mr. Special Interest and yeah. you know, has really no interest in, in actually doing anything serious about that. But I do think that that was one of the reasons why both he and Bernie Sanders did as well as they did in this election campaign. So I so, think so, everybody... so, so, I'm, so I'm having trouble reconciling. I buy what you were saying at the beginning of our conversation and I buy what you're saying now, but I'm tr having trouble seeing how it fits together, right? So there's the optimistic story that, you know, actually democratic norms are still very strong, but there are all of those institutions that contain and rein in a populist and so on, right? And that seems to me right. But then on the other side, there seems to be the story of secular institutional decline that just happens when a system is running for a long time and these special interests form and are able to capture certain institutions. I had invented this term vetocracy to describe the old system where everybody has a veto right. and all of these interest groups can stop stuff that hurts them and therefore the system can't reform itself. And I'm on record saying I think there are too many checks and balances in the United States. And then Trump gets elected <laughs> and everybody is desperate for more checks and balances because they want to contain him. And I think that... That's not quite the tension I mean. Right? So there's a tension where, where I agree with you that because it's so difficult to actually institute reform and so on, people get frustrated with the system and that's a really bad thing. And so for that reason, you want fewer veto powers that you have in the United States. Most European democracies have many fewer veto powers. You know, and then obviously now in the face of Donald Trump, you want lots of veto powers. That's right. But I mean a slightly different conflict, which is the conflict between, look, there's such deep democratic norms that the system is going to keep being stable and, and, and at some level we don't have to worry too much. And then on the other side, the story by which you have this institutional decline, which really transforms how the system is working and it starts to work less and less well and there's no obvious way to reform it unless we get into a moment of war, crisis and revolution. I mean, you can reconcile those in a certain way if you have the right leadership. So, before this election, I actually thought, you know, why isn't there more populism? You know, if you're going to ever fix something like campaign finance reform and reduce the impact of all of these PACs and outside groups that I think are corrupting our electoral system, you need a big shock, which could be, you know, the election of a true populist president that will actually try to do something about this. But they have to have the right agenda. You know, so this is this, this dilemma of executive power that both Machiavelli and Carl Schmitt wrote about. These are two authors that are not very popular in many ways, but they have this important point that rules, you know, clear rules, which we associate with the rule of law, get you only so far. So in certain mm. emergency situations or situations of national crisis or even situations where the system is blocked and unreformable, sometimes you need a kind of executive authority that breaks through all of that and fixes things. And then you go back to the rules, you know, once they've been changed. And so you need that kind of leadership. Now, I think that happened in the 1930s where you had a huge crisis, bigger than the one that we experienced in 2008. People were completely at sea as to what to do. And you elected Franklin Roosevelt, who, you know, exercised a lot of powers that, in retrospect, you know, were probably excessive. He created, you know, all these federal agencies. He did things like try to pack the Supreme Court, but he certainly tried to use his executive authority when he was resisted by either Congress or by the courts. But 
I think the historical judgment was that he put into place, you know, some policies that actually did mitigate the problems that it led to the Great Depression. Right now, we've got a populist president who could have taken that mandate and actually used it to do some very beneficial things. And instead, he's wasting it. He's basically entrenching those special interests rather than trying to do anything about it. And that's just a failure, I think, of the individual and the person, you know, like. So, so do you think we actually need a good version of Donald Trump? Is that yeah, what we I, need to I, save I the system? See how gonna, I don't see how you're going to fix the problem unless you kind of use this, you know, righteous popular anger to do something. You know, in a way, Teddy Roosevelt was another example of this in, in the original progressive movement where you did have a lot of groundswell of popular anger against corruption in the United States, and he was able to mobilize it. But that's just a matter of luck that we've had these presidents, you know, at certain critical junctures that were able to actually execute that kind of agenda. Other countries are not so lucky. I mean, I continue to think that Italy was this unbelievably unlucky country that at the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, they had this huge opportunity to fix their system because both the Communist Party and the Christian Democrats, which had divided power in this highly corrupt system for the entire post-war period, both of these parties simply dissolved. And at that point, if you had had a leader like either of the Roosevelts, you know, Italy could have fixed a lot of its structural problems in its labor market and, you know, I mean, with a lot of other things. But instead, you got Berlusconi, who essentially wasted that mandate. And so for the next 20 years, Italy actually moves backwards because, you know, he gets elected primarily, in my view, to protect his own personal interests. And I think, you know, that's the that's the problem with Trump. I mean, I I'm not opposed to extraordinary executive powers in emergency situations. I just don't see how countries can survive without, you know, without that sort of thing. But it has to be in the hands of the right person. That's a fascinating conclusion to reach. I didn't think that that would be where, where we would end the conversation. Um, I, I have a million more <laughs> questions that I'd love to ask you about, and including that I understand that you have a penchant for woodworking, that we'll, we'll, we'll have to uh, leave all of that to another conversation. Um, thank you so much for joining us on The Good Fight. Okay, thanks very much, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. We are approaching a big milestone here at The Good Fight. We need to procure long-term funding from an institutional sponsor or an advertiser. So if you love this show and want to keep listening to it, please do subscribe. Please do tell your friends about it. Please do spread the word. And finally, as ever, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight@newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.